and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're talking with Maggie Milner about her new book, Couplets. Yeah, and the book is about, it's in verse, it's written in verse, and it is about a woman who turns her life sort of inside out because of a love affair. And I wanted to ask you, Kate, in in honor of an upcoming (laughs) holiday, have you ever turned your life inside out? Wow. Affair. Wow. I don't know. Question. It is. It is. I guess I have, but not in the way of this book. I mean, like you know, turned your life inside out, like going from being single and free and wild to being in a long-term monogamous relationship. That's the kind of inside-out turning that I. I've experienced, you know, everything else was just kind of par for the course. But that's how my life turned inside out when I settled down, strangely. Yeah, me too, I think. Hmm. I guess me too. We're so boring. We are so boring, but the book is really not boring. And the conversation with Maggie, I thought, was also really not boring. I think it was also interesting that I expected the conversation to be more about the actual love affair itself, but we kind of talked more about the way of writing about love and writing about personal information and um, more of the formal aspects of the book as opposed to the fiery content romance at the core of it. Yeah. I actually noticed that it's like Maggie Milner week on LARP because there have been some great reviews of the book, two reviews as well. Yeah. So we're really celebrating Valentine's Day by diving into couplets with Maggie Milner. So let's get to the conversation. Today we're joined by the writer Maggie Milner, whose debut book, Couplets, was just released from FSG. Maggie is a poet whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The Nation, and many other magazines. She teaches writing at Yale and is a senior editor at the Yale Review. Couplets is a love story in verse, written in alternating chapters of couplets and prose poems. It's about a woman whose life is good. She has a loving partner, caring friends, organic vegetables, plenty of tote bags. But everything changes when she meets a woman at a bar and falls deeply in love, beginning an intense, all-consuming affair. What follows is an exploration of selfhood, a body and heart turned inside out. Milner writes about the ways in which we discover ourselves, the power other people have over us, about being both subject and object. Couplets is about relationships, queerness, sex, and desire, as well as the very act of writing all of that down and turning it into poetry. Maggie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for that intro. I'm so happy to be here. I was wondering if we could start just with the form of the couplet itself. As someone who is not a poet, I don't have a strong association with it, but I was wondering what your association had been with the couplet before you began this book and kind of how you came to it as one of the main forms in the book. There was a great quote on your back cover from Garth Greenwell talking about the couplet as this like form for moralism in the 18th century, which again, I, I wasn't familiar with. So tell us about the couplet. My associations, as I think a lot of people's associations are, are that the couplet is this really seminal form of English language poetry. Chaucer, you know, the Canterbury Tales, that's in rhyming couplets. 
there was this huge resurgence of the rhyming couplet in mock epics by people like Alexander Pope. It's really been kind of historically a form of the long poem in English. If we think of like Homer, Homerian, Western epics as being in, you know, dactylic hexameter is like the form of the Greek epic or the Latin epic in the Aeneid then the way those texts have often been translated into English is in the form of the rhyming couplet. The heroic couplet is what you'd call that if it's in iambic pentameter. So it's this cornerstone of the Western canon in a certain way. It's also a form that was like a lot of formal poetry kind of fell out of fashion during modernism. It's come back in a little bit in the form of light verse. People like Robert Lowell, you know, some of the more kind of formally inclined poets of the 20th century use it. But in general, it's a form, like a lot of these forms, that's very prescriptive, it's very metrical, it rhymes, and it's thought to be pretty antiquated, I think. is You know, that was certainly my association with it, was if something rhymes, especially if it rhymes in a couplet, right, when the rhymes are so close together and they're so claustrophobic almost, they draw so much attention to themselves, there's something very sing song. There's something very written. It doesn't sound anything like speech, right? Which is kind of how poetry has come to sound. We think of contemporary poetry and lyric poetry, especially as having some kind of relationship to contemporary speech. Certainly the couplet is not that. So I found myself writing in this form sort of by accident. It wasn't a form I had played with all that much prior to this project. But I think the content in some ways dictated, it called for some kind of constraint, I felt. I found myself writing the earlier poems. So the earlier poems in the book are indeed like the poems that I wrote kind of chronologically first. So most of those are the first poems that were written in this book. And You really kind of see, I think, this speaker really thinking on the page and trying to make sense of a set of experiences that feel somewhat resistant to normative sense-making. They feel totally confusing and disorienting and mushy. And there's a sense that life has kind of spun off its axis a little bit. The categories by which this speaker has historically made sense of her life suddenly don't seem to really apply. And so I think, although I wasn't necessarily conscious of this at the time, I think I turned to that form in some ways to give myself some sense of structure and, you know, an anchor, a kind of orientation within some thematic material that felt really murky and otherwise really unstructured. And, you know, that seemed to work. It felt kind of organic. It felt interesting. I also got to kind of play. I got to be playful in language in ways that really appealed to me. And then at a certain point, the form kind of took hold. There was enough momentum. When you're writing in a form that's really repetitive, especially a form that rhymes, like it's almost actually hard. I found it was very hard to turn it off once I started, once I really like got in the flow of it. So that's sort of where I ended up. And then at a certain point, partway through, you know, maybe 10 to 15 poems in, that's when I started really thinking consciously about 
what the heroic couplet maybe symbolizes within canonical English poetry. I wasn't thinking about it consciously before then, but then I started to think, okay, if this is the form that I'm writing in, what are the, what's the baggage or what are the expectations and the kind of cultural connotations that have become attached to this form and how am I stepping into that tradition or pushing against it? There's a part in the book where you, so one part is couplets and poetry in that form. And then it alternates with prose poems, I think you might call them, that are in the second person. You explicitly address making the decision to write in the second person. And part of that is about the speaker making herself also the subject and, and sort of figuring out the best ways to do that. And I was wondering how you dealt with that and also maybe how you want us to talk about the text, whether you want us to talk about it as you (laughs) or do you want us to talk about it as a speaker or alternate? It could be a free-for-all. I'm so happy you asked this. Some people don't and they just jump right, they leap right into assuming that there's really no distinction between the writer and the narrator. I think that's actually something, that assumption itself is something I'm really calling into question very explicitly, especially in those prose sections, which are a little bit more analytical or a little bit more about the act of writing itself. So in answer to your question, I like to maintain a pretty rigorous distinction between the self, the self on the page, and the person composing that text for a few reasons. One is that I think we have a tendency to read specifically writing by poets and specifically also writing by women and queer people as being perhaps involving less artifice or imagination than maybe works by other categories of people, right? We assume that the work is in some ways, a if it's a coming out text, it must be a confessional pretext for autobiography. And I'm interested in kind of troubling that distinction also because I think we live in a time when we feel kind of collectively very nosy and entitled to the biographical information, the kind of paratextual information that accompanies a work. And I'm really interested in protecting, not protecting my privacy, actually. That feels actually much less salient than just protecting the work as this aesthetic object that I've created that exists outside of the context of my life. Well, I was going to say there seems like there's a reference to autofiction in the text, and you have these great quotes by Jamaica Kincaid and Ty Ginsburg saying as much like the Kincaid quote is kind of like, this has a lot of overlaps with my everyday life, but my everyday life is also really messy. And then one of my favorite books, Family Lexicon, Ginsburg saying kind of like, this is a true story, but read it like a novel. And in fiction and more narrative work, I could see that it would be much easier to kind of have a slippage between the narrator and the author. But in poetry, there's also such a history of, as you say, the confessional. And it seems like the intense lyricism is the thing that would blur it even more, where there is not everyday life, you know, often that comes rhyming that comes with this lyricism that comes at times really abstracted where I I actually, the book takes place in the Northeast. There were moments where I, I had no idea like where we were beyond that. You know, it became almost like a mythical land. So 
I guess I'm curious about the way that poetry is like a further, you know, kind of guard against that slippage or or maybe it's not. What do you think? I mean, I think that's right. I think the confessional tradition in some ways, this is maybe contestable, but I think the confessional tradition has taken, has really influenced the way we write contemporarily. I mean, before Lowell and Snodgrass and Plath and Berryman and this kind of coterie of mid-20th century poets who were writing about their life, the expectation in poetry was almost never that something was strictly autobiographical. We just didn't expect that. We expected that if something's being presented, it's highly mediated. And yes, maybe, you know, it bears some relationship to an experience of the poet, but it's not this kind of real-time, unmediated working out on the page of someone's unfiltered subjectivity. That's new. That's really a pretty new phenomenon in poetry and in literature, maybe more generally. But I think actually the inheritance of confessionalism is, it's a pretty prominent way that we tend to read poetry, I think, today in general, is that we expect poems for the most part, at least at least the ones that circulate in big magazines and are, you know, maybe legitimized by bigger institutions, those poems tend, I think, often to have a stable lyric eye, right? To be in the first person and to be assumed to have some, you know, specifically often identitarian kind of relationship to the writing subject, the person actually doing the writing. I would say actually... I find that most people reading poems assume actually less of a boundary or a more porous boundary maybe between the person writing and the experience being described. I do think you're right that in poetry, it's this more kind of like poetry is drawing more attention to the aestheticization, right, to the ways that that experience is being transformed into language. It's foregrounding the materiality of the language that's being used. But I do think that we tend to assume that lyric poetry, confessional poetry are kind of just synonymous with poetry these days. It has come to really be, we don't go to poems to read fictional stories, I don't think. We don't turn to them necessarily to get some kind of narrative payoff necessarily. We usually turn to them to get this intense, subjective, you know, this really intimate encounter with another person's subjectivity who we assume, I think, often to be the writer. So so that was also something I was interested in pushing back against because I do think that's also happening in autofiction. You know, I do think this is a phenomenon that has a parallel in prose these days, maybe more than ever with the sort of unprecedented amount of personal essay that's being written and memoir that's being written and autofictional novels that are being written, right? So I think it's something that's happening in prose, but in in poetry, I think we almost we almost don't even notice it. It's become so much part of the way we read that I think we almost, yeah, just we're always kind of just making that assumption from the get-go. As you were talking, it occurred to me that you were saying that like poetry is sometimes we're desirous of this like intimate access to the person. 
And it's kind of maybe the same in relationships where you're with somebody and what you want is this like unfilled. I mean, maybe you don't. If you're a healthy person with boundaries, like we were talking about right before the show, you probably are okay with not having intense, intimate access and unfiltered access to the person. But I think there's ways in which in love, we really want that kind of like unfiltered intimacy and that we think that we want full access. And that's like, always seems like one of the things that your book is also about is like the total impossibility of ever having that, of desiring it and working very hard at it, but eventually grappling with with the idea that it's not possible, nor is it possible with even ourselves, it seems like. I wonder if you could talk about that. I mean, that's like maybe too big. I don't know. But talk about that impossibility and how you maybe approach that. I mean, I think there is an intimacy, maybe the greatest intimacy in the book, to your point, is the intimacy of the disclosure that this speaker is making to the page itself, right? There's the most profound or the most sustained relationship, I think, in the book is really the speaker's relationship to herself and specifically the way her relationship to herself gets mediated through art, like through the act of writing, the act of composition. These are really kind of big questions and they're questions that sustain in the end much longer and maybe with more depth than either of the romantic relationships that the book depicts. And I think, so I think you're onto something there where it does feel like maybe one of the takeaways of the book, insofar as anything can be distilled to some kind of takeaway, is that we certainly can't achieve that level of total knowledge of another person. There's also, I think this is a speaker who also in moments really wants total self-dissolution within another person, right? To really merge with another person, to really dissolve any boundaries between her and the beloved and to really lose herself and kind of submit in a kind of radical way to the will of another person. We find that that's maybe not such a practicable goal in the end, I think, in the book. But the act of knowing oneself while it's totally this ongoing and never totalizing kind of knowledge, that act of continual self-discovery is maybe part of the engine of the book, maybe more than anything else. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Maggie Milner about her book, Couplets. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Deshaun Charles Winslow on the line. Deshaun's most recent book is Decent People. It's a novel. It's amazing. And he's here to give me a book recommendation. Hi. I would love to recommend a book called What Napoleon Could Not Do. It's by D.K. Enru, last name spelled N-N-U-R-O. And it is about a man, a young man named Jacob in Ghana who wants so badly to get to America. His older sister has already made it to the States and she has 
gotten married and is having great success and he just wants his shot and the book also follows his sister and his sister's husband and sort of following their life's trajectories and challenges it's a wonderful novel and it's just out now oh wow okay that sounds interesting so is this a Ghanaian writer who is writing this yes Derek is from Ghana uh-huh. But living in the States now or but still li- living? Living in Iowa. Living in Iowa. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you read much Ghanaian fiction or other African fiction? Not a lot. Not a lot. Derek is a classmate of mine. And so I know him personally. Sadly, I don't read as much international fiction as I should. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> and where? So, And where in America do these characters move? There's scenes in the D.C. area and in Texas, I believe. Okay, well, that sounds great. Can you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Sure. It's What Napoleon Could Not Do by Derek D.K. Enroux. Thank you so much, Deshaun. Thank you. That was Deshaun Charles Winslow. His latest novel is Decent People. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Maggie Milner, author of Couplets. I mean, I think that's really true and something, you know, that you quote this Vivian Gornick. Um, I wasn't sure what book that was from, but maybe the one about the romance and the end of the novel of love is the essay. For some reason, I thought that was also the name of the book, but maybe it's, I think it maybe is. I'm no, no, but yeah, but it's this quote where she says, "You know, no one would buy a story in which women self-discover by dint of some new lover." So there's that, and that's certainly something that comes up here. That this speaker is kind of not that the love that they experience isn't necessarily leading to like so much personal revelation, but at the same time, it is also a book about this revelation of desire and about kind of coming into being queer. So it has both. And I, it certainly doesn't seem like the book is framed around the kind of coming out as revelation. And it's, it is kind of muted, but then that is what is happening in the book is meeting someone and realizing a desire right as it's happening, as you say, you know, wanting something the moment you attain it. And that's how you, you know, you want it. So Talk about that, both things kind of being there at once. Well, I think after that quote, the speaker kind of quibbles with it where she says, okay, maybe I can't, maybe the conventions of prose narrative do prevent me from suggesting that I could ever kind of find myself through a romantic encounter, that that could be an act of self-discovery. But in poetry, I think she says, like, in poetry, then let me say that love has been above all things, the engine of self-knowledge in my life. So there is this push and pull, I think, as you say, exactly between the idea that other people, that interpersonal contact can lead to deeper self-knowledge and the idea that actually, in order to be an autonomous kind of subject, we actually have to know ourselves as independent beings and that love is... It is an incomplete form of self-knowledge. What about being queer? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, that I think is if the coming out 
there is a little muted. I think it has everything to do with the love that this speaker really does hold on to the love she has for her ex-boyfriend specifically, right? So I think there's this implication or at least an implication that she senses that to come out is to come into some kind of preordained and kind of essentialist identity, which entails, right, the renunciation of everything else you were doing, every other misguided thing you did before that. And I think she's really uncomfortable with that narrative because there's so much genuine love for the ex-boyfriend. And I think a lot of genuine self-love for the self, you know, a genuine love for the self up until the point of that realization. And maybe also, and this goes to our the previous question, but I think also she has a suspicion of, of narratives that resolve in this kind of triumphant way or this idea that once you come out, there's some definite form of arrival and then the work is done and you can sort of wash your hands and go be the person you were always destined to be. When, of course, that's not the case. And I think especially for people who come out, especially for queer people or people who are kind of interested in stepping into alternative relationship models, which this book also describes, I think the work is sort of unfortunately or fortunately, it's never really done. You're sort of engaged in this ongoing negotiation between your desires and the way that you care for or kind of ethically relate to another person. And so I think there's a fear maybe that a really triumphant and kind of redemptive coming out narrative suggests some kind of closure or some kind of finitude that this book maybe doesn't want to suggest. At the same time, right, as you're saying, Kate, it is a book that does involve these kind of quantum discoveries about the self. There is a different level of self-knowledge and transformative self-understanding by the end of this book that has everything to do with these relationships and the way that love and the observation and analysis of that love has kind of changed the narrator's relationship to herself. So I do think it's both. I think it's both. I think there's both this, it's dancing a little bit or vacillating a little bit between those two truths that, you know, there's nothing conclusive about coming out and also that coming out or coming into an understanding of oneself in a relational way is actually a really lasting and transformative experience. Kind of on that note, in terms of desire and writing about desire, a lot of the book is quite frankly deals with sex and eroticism. And that seems like really tricky to me in terms of figuring out how to write about it. And I was wondering if you have, like, how did you figure out how to write about sex in a way that is not horrifying for you <laughs> or that's not prurient? How do you write erotically, I guess, is my question. I think it's not terribly different as a writer. The experience of writing erotically isn't terribly different from the experience of writing other kinds of scenes, scenes that involve multiple characters. Of course, 
there's something else going on. I mean, there's this other frequency, obviously, to the writing. And I think there is an interest in creating, if writing is supposed to, in some sense, which I think it is, supposed to, in some ways, not just tell or convey, but also kind of mimetically facilitate an experience for another person, there is some desire to titillate or at least to tap into a kind of embodiment on the part of the reader, right? To remind them that they have a body and that this isn't this totally disembodied reading experience. So that's something to negotiate, right? How to then do that without appealing to kind of salacious or prurian interests or imagery. I think I tried to be really precise. I think poetry has been helpful for me as a way to write about. I mean, I'm not sure exactly if I would do it the same way if I were writing novelistic prose, but poetry, because so much of what I'm doing as a poet, I think is thinking about the tactility of language, thinking about how words kind of feel on a sensory level in my mouth and as these kind of tactile materials on the page, I feel sort of tapped into a kind of sensory experience when I'm writing that maybe lends itself actually to very precise or very attuned erotic writing. And I also think I feel sort of just temperamentally as a person sort of difficult to scandalize. So I maybe just have always written kind of erotic stuff. Basically, since I started having sex, it just seemed like it was always on the table for me. It just was one dimension of experience and experience in general was something I wanted to unpack and atomize in writing. And so it didn't, it hasn't necessarily had this, it didn't feel terribly scary for me necessarily, because I think I've, you know, erotic writing has kind of been something I've been up to for a very long time, maybe. I really liked when you talk about, or not you, when the speaker talked about, you know, they're kind of like referring to the way they always say come, but they could also use the word climax. And then like kind of tracing Willa Cather's use of the word climax. It just seemed, it was so funny taking this kind of more like pornographic word or, you know, that's just very shorthand and then looking at other options. I liked that a lot. You know, something I, I felt like the story is kind of age old, but um, it also seems contemporary in that there is a more open discussion about non-monogamy taking place and, you know, a little bit of reference to apps. But I also thought that there's this discussion about kind of like the way that desire is atomized and that people do become proxies for other people. And it's also about someone who very much has a new lover with an old lover still in their mind. And the new lover is also engaged in like this, you know, side hookup where someone who's a part of that is like sleeping with the new lover because of someone else's like wife that they're cheating on. It just, but to me, I thought that was very realistic and so much the way, you know, like if desire is kind of like with us from the beginning, it's like everyone is almost a proxy for someone else, you know, not least maybe in a kind of gross out way, our parents there's so much like cross pollination. So curious to hear if you remember when you wanted to get that in or how you wanted to get that in or just your thoughts on that. That's a really interesting question. 
this question of like, on the one hand, the love triangle is one of the foundational building blocks of like the Victorian novel, for instance, right? Like we think of the love triangles and and especially kind of the multiplicity of love being this age old kind of literary trope. And yet there's something very contemporary about the way it's handled in this book. I think that's really right. I think in some ways, first of all, I think we have culturally more tolerance for those kinds of complexities than we used to, partly because we live after the era of women's lib and (laughs) most of human and literary history have unfolded over a time when a marriage was not something we necessarily thought of as a terribly consensual and mutually fulfilling and mutually kind of self-actualizing arrangement. So I think we're in a time when we're developing vocabularies and systems and modes of, of thinking and talking about the complexities of romantic multiplicity, I'll say. The phenomenon itself is super, super old. It's a tale as old as time, but the vocabularies and the models and the intentionality for how to kind of negotiate and handle the inevitability of that phenomenon, that is what feels maybe a little bit newer. And maybe it also feels conspicuous when it's handled in rhyming couplets, right? Because there is this friction or this tension inevitably between if I'm describing an experience of going on a Tinder date, but I'm doing it in rhyming couplets, we really see the tension between the historical residues of the form and the total contemporaneity of the experience being described. So I think we have new ways of thinking about love triangles, about polyamory, about alternative relationship models. I also think part of what this speaker is doing is approaching relationships from a newly kind of unstructured or defamiliarized place where the trappings of her old life have been thrown off so completely, right? Like she, in a matter of days, goes from essentially having a straight marriage, a marriage that is assumed to be eternal, right? And assumed to be monogamous and heterosexual and really pretty culturally legible in all kinds of ways to not only dating a woman, but dating a woman who's also dating other people who are also dating other people who are also entangled in some broader kind of romantic web of experiences and intrigue. So it felt important to also contrast the, I don't know, the chastity in some way of the life that she lived beforehand with the total kind of messiness of the life that she's stepping into, which involves not just thinking about another person, but thinking about the ways that other person relates ethically to some other people and how they relate to some other people and how they relate to some other people, right? Which feels very true, at least in my experience, to the experience of contemporary dating. In the beginning of the book, there's a beautiful moment where the speaker in the book talks about how 
during sex, there is a moment where she no longer has to deal with like the nausea of figuring out the self. It's a relief. She kind of just surrenders to nothingness. And I wonder if you could talk about what her relationship to selfhood is by the end of the book. If you have some idea of the kind of arc that she goes through. I mean, I think there's something still within that queer relationship that recapitulates a lot of heterosexual dynamics. She's very used to being submissive. She's drawn to being, there's scenes of bondage, there's scenes of all the, you know, all of the sex that happens between her and her girlfriend, at least as it's depicted, shows her as kind of a bottom, <laughs> right? Which does, in some ways, it's this huge leap from the kind of sex she's been having with a man because it involves levels of intimacy that I think can happen between women. And I think when you're specifically engaging in culturally transgressive sex, but don't totally trouble some other notions of femininity or the kinds of roles or expectations she has set for herself. And I think by the end of the book, there's maybe a little bit more awareness on her part of the ways that that desire to dissolve or to be erased by the act of sexual passion relates to impulses in her that are maybe very gendered and very conditioned and that she doesn't necessarily want or need to hold on to as she becomes more of an agent, as she develops a greater kind of self-knowledge and a greater maybe fluency and comfort in the queer world, which at first to her is utterly alien and to which she feels utterly foreign and really conspicuously out of place. So I do think that she has maybe, I do think the book rejects on some level the idea that a self is a, a single, stable, totalizing identity that a person can have. I think there's an idea of being multiple, an idea of being permeable, and that the self is not something also that you discover in a teleological way, but you kind of rediscover in new contexts throughout, you know, in a cyclical way, perhaps throughout the experience of being alive. But I do think there is still something cumulative about the knowledge that we have about ourselves. The more that we live and the more that we encounter ourselves in different kind of relational arrangements, right? And so I do think while she's not, again, you know, this maybe goes back to our question about coming out. While I think she's not in some conclusive place where she has total self-knowledge or self-actualization has happened and it's all triumphant and everything's hunky-dory. I do think she has a bit more knowledge of how she wants to orient herself toward the world and the kinds of possibilities that might become available to her. And that there's a little more sense of agency in that. And I think that sense of agency maybe precludes totally submissive or totally bottomy <laughs> sex in a certain way for her. That's not the only way she wants to relate to her romantic partners. 
She doesn't necessarily know what the alternative is, but it doesn't necessarily feel like self-dissolution or total self-escapism is what she needs sex to do for her anymore by the end. I'm wondering, we're talking so much about the speaker, and I think this we come back to this idea of, you know, better to have loved and lost than never have loved at all multiple times in the book and kind of like the supremacy of intense feeling over other experiences or having made other experiences pain worth everything. And I just wanted to ask you personally, maybe as our last question, if that's what you believe and if that's how you live your life. Wow. Good question, Kate. I think it's a yes and no. I think avoidance is no way to live. I, th- I think I think if the options are kind of live in a way that is fully engaged, you know, fully emotionally engaged or be avoidant and kind of try to elide or push away those kinds of self-knowledge generating experiences, those kinds of really intense experiences. I do think I err on the side of the former, but at the same time, I'm also pretty pragmatic. (laughs) I'm not someone who has some kind of romanticized notion of extreme experiences being, you know, the only fodder for art that we have. I think I definitely don't feel that. And I think there's a youthfulness to that idea. I think that would be exhausting. You know, if every book I wrote were predicated on the levels of feeling and self-analysis that this book entailed, you know, I think I would probably not be terribly healthy. But I also think these formative emotional experiences, and I think early adulthood is a time where the intensity of, of feeling, it does open us up in ways that I think maybe even in practical ways really serving us later in life. It's a time maybe for that kind of experimentation and for a certain level of embracing those relational kind of mind-boggling, bewildering interpersonal experiences. But I don't, you know, I have a a demanding job. I have demanding relationships. I, I take very seriously kind of what I owe to the people around me and especially the people who love me and the people who I love. And I think sort of a life predicated on chasing extreme experiences or being kind of an adventure junkie or an experience junkie, that's not sort of how I orient myself, I think. Even as I feel very receptive to having my life expanded and my world expanded when those inevitabilities happen. Well, lucky um, that, like we were saying, not everything you write has to be true. You make a lot of stuff up. So. Exactly. Lucky me. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Maggie, for speaking with us. Thank you so much for these wonderful questions. This was so much fun. That was Maggie Milner. Her new book is called Couplets. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. 
and we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the Lard Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.